0: hello and welcome again to the famous cfc podcast where each episode delves into a different story from the fascinating heritage of chelsea football club my name's gary barone and once again i'm joined by club historian rick lanville our very own Rickopedia. hello mate it only seems like yesterday we were together um, oh yeah it was wasn't it it
1: was and what a heartwarming win uh against the rather toothless wolves you got to say but isn't it great to be back on track apparently
0: Yeah, well, I I think we've all seen games before in between European matches where we've rested players and rotated the squad and then it's backfired because we haven't won. And then there's no guarantee that you win the European match again anyway. So I think the important thing was we got a result, we kept a clean sheet. There were some individually individually really good performances. And yet again, and I'm sure you'll pick up on this, there was more signs of
1: partnerships developing on the pitch, which is so vital. Absolutely, You know, Breuer gets his first goal, a stupid (laughs) VAR Mm -hmm. review of that. And of course, Carni Chukraman. They were desperate to rule it out, weren't they? Yeah, (laughs) Carni Chukramate. But they looked at it for a
0: long time and surely to any naked eye, first glance. First glance it's a goal. They were looking for a reason to rule it out, I'm convinced.
1: Yeah, exactly, mate. Exactly.
0: Anyway, on with the show. On with the show. Right, so Black History Month takes place every October in the UK and Ireland, celebrating the contributions of people in the African diaspora. So, we thought for this episode, we'd look at Chelsea's pioneer players of Afro Caribbean heritage. And we'll be chatting to a true groundbreaker from the 1990s, Paul Elliott, a brilliant defender, co founder of anti discrimination organisation Kick It Out, all round football bigwig, and an eloquent man of words. But first, Rick,
1: what can we say generally about the history of Chelsea and racism? Well, I'm sure you could say it too, uh, Gary, but we don't have a proud history in this respect, like other football clubs and, of course, society in general. For decades, Chelsea was associated with racism on the terraces and sometimes, we now know, within the club itself. Um, Of course, the overwhelming majority of supporters like us were not bigots, hated it. But a hardcore meant there have been more racist incidents involved in our club than most others, and it drags the drags us through the mud. It's horrific. And, of course, you don't see it so much now, and there's not so much evidence of it, but we still have to remain totally vigilant. Absolutely. I mean, discriminatory language and charts on the terraces used
0: to be very public, mm, exactly. uh, rather than anonymous cowards on social media. Now, I remember as a youngster, it used to be so much worse. One of the things that worries me, though, Rick, is Mm. although a lot of people have realised that these things are not acceptable, some of them seem to think by changing those chants to anti-Semitic chants that That, is acceptable. It's just
1: it's like, um, what do you not understand about it? Partly because it's obviously it's against the law. It's horrific to try and discriminate people on the basis of their religion or their colour or any any other ethnicity, sexuality, whatever. And um, you know we're I think what I remember from being a, particularly when I was very young, before I felt confident enough, old enough, secure enough to sort of speak out and tell people to shut up and and have actually, and I've regularly had a go at people who've used that kind of language uh, as a supporter, um, was just feeling powerless and looking at these kind of, this, not of people politically motivated, very right wing, coming out with all this bilge and thinking, God, I wish they'd just shut up, but not at the time, not feeling empowered to do that. And I think what lots of organizations, including some of the ones that Paul Elliott's been involved in, have done is helped empower people and help persuade authorities that uh, a helping hand is needed. And you know, we need to weed out the bigots. Yeah, no, I, I totally
0: agree. And I still feel some guilt and shame myself when I stood idly by and didn't um, confront people. Um, because if you're not part of the solution, you're part of the problem.
1: Absolutely right. Stokely Carmichael. Is that right? Well done. Yeah.
0: Um, in any event, I do believe we're winning or we're starting to win. But what you said earlier, we must remain vigilant. Yeah. Now, Paul yeah. Elliott, our guest, he wasn't actually Chelsea's first back player, was
1: he? No, he wasn't. Uh, although he was significant Uh black player, the honour goes to Paul Cannaville who was, as you know a teenager recruited from non-league football uh, and as the trailblazer in 1982 he suffered terrible abuse from a sizeable section of the uh, Chelsea fans I mean, it really was horrific and relentless but he stood proud and was eventually crowned King Canners uh, and his name was sung at games, Cannaville, Cannaville, Cannaville of course um, I helped Paul Wrighty's autobiography, Black and Blue, which catalogues all of this for people that want to, to read about it. And I've got to say, to his eternal credit, um, the chairman at the time, Ken Bates, took on and tried to banish uh, the bigots, yeah, um, that was in the in the mid '80s, you know, through his column and stuff. So good for him.
0: Yeah, as right. you rightly say, he does it. He's a credit from that. He doesn't always get the, the best press in the world no, for he deserves Chelsea. it for that
1: though. Definitely,
0: absolutely does. Um. Anyway, prior to that, we there were some earlier players that were
1: almost pioneers, weren't they? That's yes. about those. Yeah, there's a few actually. I mean, way back in 1938, would you believe? There's a. a well, Skelmersdale Liverpool teenager called Fred Hanley, whose father was Jamaican. Um, he was bought by then Chelsea manager Leslie Knighton, who actually, in a newspaper article, pointedly declared that while some clubs, football clubs, had a colour bar, Chelsea, he said, will stand against any bias. Well,
0: that, that's glad to hear. Now, for a lot of people, they may not be familiar with the expression colour bar, which we obviously... It's mm, yes.
1: archaic, the most, uh, really, uh, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, uh,
0: What well, this was institutional discrimination that banned men and women from some areas of employment or housing purely on the basis of their skin colour.
1: Yeah, and absolutely despicable. Trade unions, all sorts of people that we might now think are progressive movements, would operate that kind of, of policy. And it was uh, it's long outlawed technically at least anyway fred hanley uh was a star turn for our reserves but um he was let go by incoming manager willie birrell just before war broke out so that was the end of his tale unfortunately then in the early 60s we had our youth scheme was doing brilliantly and a young midfielder called eric mckenzie from brixton he excelled for that all-conquering youth team. He played alongside Chopper Harris and others. But really, sadly, he suffered a career-ending injury just as it appeared he'd break into the first team in the mid-60s. Then, so of go through to the 70s, and you have goalkeeper Derek Richardson, another Black Londoner who came through the Chelsea Youth Scheme, who was very close uh, one weekend Uh, to debuting for the first team in the mid-70s, but didn't. So he ended up moving on. So that's how Canners became the first in April 1982.
0: Then other players of African Caribbean heritage followed in Canners' wake before Paul Elliott came to the bridge.
1: Yeah, it's true. Um, I mean, people, older fans will remember Keith Jones and Keith Dublin, who played quite a number of matches for us. They were really the first black graduates from the youth team uh, in the early to mid-80s. And then after them, you had... I'm sure a lot of people will recall, Super Kenny Monkel, the Netherlands Netherlands, uh, defender, who was actually voted, he's the first black player of the year for Chelsea in 89-90, an excellent, uh, super cool defender, very popular. And then, of course, uh, a year after that, in 1991, Paul Elliott arrived from Celtic as this forceful, stylish centre-back and instantly became a leader he scored on his debut and was handed the armband a few months later. And both of those are uh, were breakthroughs for a person of uh, Afro-Caribbean background. So let's hear from Paul himself. And we started by asking him of
0: his impressions of Chelsea before signing in 1991. Paul, like me, you're from South
2: London. I'm from Camberwell. I understand you are born and brought up in Lewisham. Yes, absolutely. A fellow Lewisham brethren, as they say. Always good to meet a South London man. But it was, um, yeah, this is a big part of my life. Very, very proud, and obviously one of the things was historically the amount of players that come out of South London. If you look at the past, the present, and if you look at it compares to, what Tammy Abraham, Joe Gomez, you know, uh, Jaden Sancho, you, you know, it's unbelievable. Historically, it's always been this wonderful hotbed of talent. But Paul, growing up there, you ended up at
0: Charlton. Um, yeah. Is that because Charlton had tabs at you from an early age, or were you guided towards Charlton for another
2: reason? No, oddly, I mean, I went for trials at various clubs. I went to West Ham, I had a trial at, believe it or not, Luton Town. You know, I scored a hat-trick as a speedy right-winger against Luton Town. They didn't say, I, you know, it wasn't good enough. Went to West Ham, said I wasn't good enough. Went to Millwall at 14, said I wasn't good enough. So it's sort of, sort of, I suppose, from my mindset, is I saw it as my kind of last chance saloon. And all you wanted was a chance, an opportunity. And I got that opportunity uh, by a wonderful man called Les Gore, and Roy Passy. And I went to Cheltenham at 14. I was in the reserves at 15. And then in the first team at 16. And they say the rest is history. Absolutely. Well, you played against Chelsea several times. With yes. As an,
0: as an opponent, what were your impressions about the culture surrounding the club at the time? At
2: Chelsea, well, it was very challenging. I mean, at the end of the day, it's no secret. If you look at the times that I grew up in, and, you know, racism was, was, was rife. But ultimately, we always must distinguish. Racism was rife in football. Because fundamentally, whilst you've got racism in society, and that applies today, it's always going to be in football. So going, you know, Chelsea wasn't for the faint-hearted, I have to say, at the end of the day. And it wasn't just Chelsea, it was Millwall, it was Burnley, it was Leeds United, it was Newcastle. You speak to the cohort of my generation of players, and they were really challenging players to places to go and play. So, you know, for me, uh, I, I, I started the game a boy and ended up a man. Absolutely. But you
0: joined us in 91. You scored on your debut. You made captain in a team of big personalities. But at the time, how aware were you that these were landmark things for a black man at Chelsea?
2: In truth, I wasn't aware of that time. It wasn't until even years after when people said to me, Paul, did you know you were the first black club and team captain at Chelsea? No, I wasn't. Yes, you were. You were the first black captain to play in the Premier League? No, I wasn't. Yes, you were in the early 90s. And then, obviously, all the, the, you know, first black player to, English player to play in Italy, first black player to play for Celtic in Scotland. All these things you weren't aware of at the time because I had to just get on with my job. I was there to play, do my job, and and they're wonderful things that, particularly around this subject matter, become more relevant and poignant.
1: But you were the first black Player at Chelsea to score on your debut as well. What, what memories uh, Rick, do you have of that?
2: Well, listen, I've seen it often enough. I mean, in fact, and I'm sure, Rick, I scored in both because we played Notts County the second game, and I scored in that as well. I'm sure yeah. I did at home, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. But I remember it was it was a it was a corner, wasn't it? I think. Why is he took the corner? And there was a kind of flick on at the near post, and I've come in at sort of the far post and looped it over the the advancing keeper.
0: Ten minutes before half time, Elliot pulled Chelsea level with a looping header over a rather flat-footed Hans Sagers. Elliott scored five times for Celtic last season, but it was his defensive qualities which really caught the eye. Now that he's playing in the capital, he'll certainly come into consideration for an England cap. And his power in the air is a valuable asset at set pieces.
2: It was a wonderful feeling because it just embedded me straight into the football club.
1: Now you talked about your sort of perception of of what it was like to play at Chelsea, but you were like a senior player. And skipper, of course. So youngsters would Mm -hmm. have looked up to you. I mean, did they talk about any discrimination issues that
2: they had? Not really, no. Because, I mean, as I said, when I spoke about my... my, I mean, I remember playing at Chelsea when I was a sort of 16, 17 Mm. year old at Charlton and it was really, really competitive. But, you, you know... but. But obviously, that time when I, I joined in, in in the early nineties, society was different, isn't it? Football mm. evolved. Football started to incrementally become more diverse. It was like the start of the Premier League, which was then capturing that international brand. So, so mm-hmm. it wasn't something that I, mean, I remember having conversations like with Ken Moncal. Ken was from Holland, so it wasn't really until I engaged more so with Paul Canaville, who mm. I knew as a mate down the line, and recognizing ah. you know his journey back in the early 80s, because and I read his book as well, which was a fabulous insight into challenges. <laughs> I, I know you did, Rick. You're, you're the other <laughs> king, mate. Don't worry about that. Um, so it, it wasn't then until one understood more about it. And I did hear about it, because if you remember, when he made his debut in 1982, you know, I was still at Charlton and I had a massive move into the First Division with Luton Town and David Pleat. And then David was a great man. And uh, so... It was something then that really started to, to 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 be evident in my conscious mind. Paul, you left English football, still as a young
0: man, spent two years in Tuscany, which sounds yeah. an idyllic way to spend a couple of oh. years. Um, but what was your experience of football culture, Peter, on and off the pitch? And were there many
2: other Afro-Caribbean men playing football in Syria? There was a few, but not many. I mean, the ones, put it this way, the ones I noticed immediately was on my debut against AC Milan, and it was Ruth for it know that's what I said to myself and um and the rest of the team obviously was was Italian and I remember Paolo Medina a certain man called Franco Berese Carlos <laughs> Carlos Ancelotti played, played against Ancelotti as well wow. Ivani so let's just say on, on that afternoon and, and a great center forward called Marco Van Basten so, no. um bad so, so, so let's just say, I remember when the manager to the coach, Matarazzi, was a great guy, and he said to me uh, in sort of half English, "Eliot, you're going to be very busy today." And I says, "Yes, it would appear so. Um, uh, but in the end, listen, we got beat three uh, one. It was a fabulous game. I so enjoyed myself, and the football there was of the highest order, because my second game was against Napoli. We played, I was marking Maradona, My third game was against wow. uh, Ian Rush you know, at Juventus. And nice. then I remember and Maradona. There was a certain man called Careca up front as well. So where I'm coming from on the pitch, it was an absolute magnificent education. My game improved, my technical side of my game improved, my concentration improved. And I adapted culturally, you know, within seven months, I could speak the language. And and, and it was very, that was a critical part to engage Definitely. and communicate with, with your teammates. And and Pizzi is a wonderful place, wonderful place. You know, I lived just outside, you know, and I always remember I also discovered uh, Rioja, Pinot Grigio <laughs> and um, some of the wonderful delights socially. So it was a marvellous, <laughs> it was a marvellous, wonderful time. And I, and about 18 months ago, I went back just pre-lockdown. They opened a museum in Pisa and they asked me to go back and open it. And it was of the proudest moments wow. of my life that, they, you know, 20 odd years later, that, you know, I was still part of their heart. So it was a wonderful, wonderful move. And being the first black player or English player to go there, again, this come out way down post career, I was unbelievably so proud.
1: But I remember years ago talking to you, Paul, and you talked about how it, you know, the professionalism, how that changed you. I think you called it, they, they said sacrificio. You make a sacrifice right. to be a... Sacrifice, yes, exactly. exactly. Yeah. So, you, but you brought that... You brought that that professionalism, that attitude to Chelsea in 91. But before that, of course, you were at Celtic, and that's where you earned the Jamaica Jamaica nickname.
2: Correct. It was a marvellous move. I mean, going from Italy, done two great years there, then going on to Celtic, it was Billy McNeil was my manager, one of the great sort of centre-halves. And I love Scotland. I love the people. I love the humour and remember, then you look at Rangers, then with a dominant force. I mean, I remember thinking about their team. They had Chris Woods in goal, Gary yeah. Stephen, Trevor Butcher, Richard Goff, John Brown, mm-hmm. you know, Ray Wilkins, you know, Terry Hurlock, um, Mo Johnston, Ali McCoyce, Mark Hately. I mean, that's a top class side. So yeah. the standards then on Scottish football was extremely high. Mm-hmm. And I was so fortunate, you know, to win the Scottish Player of the Year because I think that. That, for me, was a, a massive achievement with that level of quality around you. But it was two brilliant years. Two brilliant years. There goes Elliot! Yes! Paul Elliott does it again for Celtic!
1: And, of course, Celtic, as you said, later, um, later, more recently, it's come to light that Gil Scott Heron's father, Gil Heron, hmm. was the first yeah. player who played for... Celtic in in years uh, in yeah, and, yeah. it yeah 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 really like you know century ago now he was called the Brown Bomber and obviously yeah. he was called Jamaica yeah and as kindly <laughs> meant as these nicknames are there is a little bit of like identity going on isn't there yeah and I, I, I exotic mean, kind of
2: thing I mean I was asked the question and 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 and, and to be honest with you Rick is a really good point because. I think it depends on the context, number one, and the relationship with the person, number two. And I, you know, I think I'm a a simple guy, a guy to get on with. And, you know, I like to go into dressing rooms and impact people by friendship and decency and love because all the qualities are so important that you take off the field, you bring it to the camaraderie, the solidarity on the field. So my personality lent itself to that. And I think that's why I personally not had a problem. I mean, I see, I mean, I saw Frank Sinclair. Who else I see? Uh, David Lee. They're saying, Jamaica, Jamaica, how are you, my son? And they're like my brothers. Do you see what I mean? So it's used in the appropriate context. And and that's what's very important. And And I thought it was great. It's just a, you know, a term of endearment. I come from Jamaica. I'm of Jamaican parentage. Proud to be black. Proud to be of Jamaican parentage. So brilliant. But, but,
0: Paul, you still must have to rub shoulders with ex-players staff directors that you personally knew are behaved in a discriminatory fashion towards you. So how do you handle those situations?
2: well you, people have to understand what you stand for you know for all all the you, you know the jest the you know the people have to be clear what you stand for and I think people have to understand what's acceptable and what's unacceptable and if Anything that was said to me would make me feel uncomfortable, then that person would know how I feel. But I deliver it in a very clear, concise and respectful way, because I think that was part of your journey to become a teacher as well. And that was obviously in 1992. You know, I was one of the co-founders of Kick It Out, which was huge then. You know, and, and, you know, there's a sort of 30 year legacy. So that was about dealing with the issues of discrimination, prejudice, inequality, you know, you know, supporter behavior, behavior by players. So everybody has to be held to that account. So for me, that was part of the journey. It was a part of the journey of educating people as well and making people realize there are some things that you might think you can say cryptically in jest, but they are offensive, they are rude. They are inappropriate. And obviously, I had to challenge some people in that context, and that's the right thing to do. Because ultimately, you know, I've got that power and that influence, and, and I think that's been borne out that I'm still at the very vanguard of my work and what I do sort of three decades later. To so football, to society, to community, through, through the power of influence. Um, and that's very important to me.
1: It, it was dreadful that your career at Chelsea really ended. In its prime by that terrible tackle by yeah. Dean Saunders. And yeah. Gary and I would have been in the stands as you came out, hobbled out <laughs> onto the pitch. Yeah. And we all, think it, we all felt for you so much. And you'd get a hero's welcome coming yeah. out there. You were much loved uh, by the fans. But you must have felt you had so much more to give for the club at that
2: time. Rick, the reality is, I mean, I was a good pro, I looked after myself, and that's why Italy was fantastic in terms of the discipline, in terms of the way you ate, in terms of the amount of hours sleep that you got, in terms of the way you trained, you rested, which is why you know, I would have, I wouldn't have had any issues playing in the modern day game. The only thing that I, my my biggest regret is the pitches, the quality <laughs> of the pitches that you play on. I mean, honestly, some of the stuff that I played on, you know, it's like a park pitch. To be honest with you, it made Wembley look like a park pitch. But but that's probably the regret in terms of yes, I mean, I was what 28 then when I got injured, sort of 30, 31 when I retired. I know I'm a good pro, look after myself, good athlete. I could have played till I was 35 for sure. You know, uh, and if you look at what the modern strikers are, now, how they're playing, you know, your Benzemas and your, your Harry Canes and your Cristiano Ronaldo's. So I had that discipline when I was 22 and took that right throughout my career. But you know what, Rick, I have to sort of look my attitude to life, look on the half full end in life. You know what? I've still had a great life. I've had a fabulous career and playing in the environments that I've played in, you know, in the, remember, I've played in all the divisions, division two, exactly, <laughs> division one, <Yeah. laughs> obviously, first division then going to Italy in, in Syria, then in Scotland, then you know coming back into the into the Premier League. So you know what, Rick, you yeah. have to look at life and whilst I had a tinge of regret, of course you do, because I love playing football. You know, I'm I'm very very satisfied.
1: Yeah, but Paul, we really could have done with you in the '94 Cup oh, Final. bless! Were, I was, know. Was I, 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 no. I was there
2: watching it, and I was cringing. <laughs> I mean, I remember I, my my foot was in this massive chunk of plaster, you know, and I was stuck in this seat, and I, I wanted to get up, you know, and wave my crutches, you know, but I could I couldn't bloody well do it to be honest with you. But um, but listen, you know, it, it was a marvelous time. I mean, you know, Ken Bates, he was very very good to me, Ken. I had a very good relationship with him. I always judge people how they are with me. And he was very good, very kind, very generous. The same as Glenn Hoddle, wonderful man. And and despite that adversity then, Rick, they made me feel so part of the club. You know, in the modern day game when players are injured, they could quite easily be ostracised and parked, you know, because it's obvious some managers just want to work on those who are fit and are available. And I get that. But I was, I was being made to feel so... Loved, that's the word, I suppose. And I've met generations of Chelsea sports everywhere in the world, you know, and is so kind and so generous and obviously, you know, so graceful about the past as well.
0: Now, Paul, Rick and I were both at Stanford Bridge on Saturday and all players took the knee for the Premier League's No Room for Racism campaign, prompting applause from all sides of the ground as usual.
2: So has the moral argument been won? Is it a victory? Is it all over? Well say to those, how long we've been talking about racism, prejudice, inequality, what, 300 years? <laughs> is it exactly. one in two years? <laughs> the answer is an emphatic no. Is it one in 30 years since I've been sort of tried to be in, a, in my level of activism? The answer is no. Will racism be ever one? highly unlikely because whilst you've still got racism in society it's always going to be in football but football's got that duty of care to do the right thing so when supporters are inside those behavior in those stadiums there is a code of conduct you adhere to that code of conduct and if you're in breach of it then you should be removed from the stadium and not go back into it I'm a believer in education as well of course I am but you know and I know people are not silly they're not stupid and people recognize now that the challenge now obviously the same keyboard warriors you know same individuals are in stadium now they do it anonymously online and that's a big part of my work with the online safety bill you know with the government to to force that legislation through so football you know whilst football's not responsible for societal ills, i say to you with confidence candor and conviction football's doing a good job and my job is not to rest on the laurels but keep challenging the stakeholders and the media and people that i work for that's brilliant
1: paul that a safety bill and the that uh those anonymous keyboard warriors gotta be yeah. clamped down on. But these days I know your your tentacles are everywhere in the upper echelons <laughs> of, of football yeah. society. Your chair of the football association's inclusion inclusion advisory board for leadership. And uh tell us about some of the work you do uh, and how that involves or benefits Chelsea
2: Football Club. Well I've created. There's a number of reforms that I've put in place for the FA as an organisation. Obviously, been supportive with my executive colleagues. But I think the biggest single one today is the Football Leadership Diversity Code, and that was created. It was like a baby. It's conceived. This one was in my mind. (laughs) I I remember throughout throughout lockdown, I probably chaired about fifteen hundred meters, fifteen hundred meetings, virtual meetings. So we had a combination of consultancy. Consultation with with players, with coaches, with administrators, with women, with media, with HR, everybody that contributes to the process. Because ultimately, we're all we're all aware of the underrepresentation of minorities and women. You know, you know, it, it, within football, particularly on the coaching side, and also in areas like senior leadership, middle management, extended leadership, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, effectively, this model is holding football to account. It comes from an education in terms of EDI training, unconscious bias training, diverse uh, recruitment panels, and for clubs to actually recognise the social and the human, but the economic upside of diversity. And I point to the broadcasting rights. Back in 1992, they were worth 250 million pounds. Fast-track 30 years later, they're worth 10 billion. And what's that reason? Because it's it's the business model for English football is built on diversity. So that same diversity that's reflective on the field We want that reflected in the boardrooms, in the coaching sector. So this, you know, and I have to say, Rick, Chelsea's been fantastic in this. Under Bruce, Bruce sat on my committee. And, you know, Chelsea have have been a a, a vanguard of best practice. And it's been great with the new owners, notwithstanding some of the challenges that I I understand were reported. What I want to get football to do is embed EDI in their organisational DNA, from academy to grassroots, throughout the organisation. So. The football leadership diversity code is higher in target. it's based on ethnicity and gender, based on a local demographic for senior leadership and coaching positions. So, the long and short of it is, you know, we want to create more diversity, more inclusion, and that the upper echelons of the game are reflective of what's going on on the field of play.
1: Excellent stuff, Paul. And I think uh, one area of unconscious bias. Still, where it's where that's still prevalent is the media, and I'm talking about yeah. some of the stereotyping that you still hear in commentaries and things when they talk about agree. black players as a beast or a machine, and it's this kind of animal physicality, not skill, and it's the kind of language, as you rightly said, that would have been used on plantations hundreds of years ago.
2: Yeah, and, and I think that's where you know you can't buy education. Education is important, and the same way we talk about. EDI training uh, in inside football clubs, you know, for staff, for mm. directors. The same has got to be applicable to the media as well. Yeah. They should have their own plans inside that say actually they should be having unconscious bias training, EDI training, so they understand, you know, what language should and should not be used. Because ultimately, everything is constantly evolving at a rapid rate, and we all—myself, you, everybody—we're all—we never stop learning. Remember. Life is education, (laughs) and education never stops because things continually evolve. So I think we all have to be, you know, updated. Do you see where I'm coming from? And and I think, but what I don't want, I don't want us to go sort of politically correctness come crazy where people are frightened to laugh, people are frightened to say something because of fear of, say, using, say, for example, coloured instead of saying black, for example. You know, because coloured is a word that, that... I probably would think, well, you know, that's a bit sort of dated. It goes back to the plantation you think about South Africa and apartheid when you think about colour, don't you? So you're saying, okay, then, what is that person comfortable with? What way? I'm a black guy. No, I'm black. I'm British. So so I think those nuances are very, very important, and people shouldn't be ostracised for making that mistake, as long as it's an honest mistake that really can be, um, shall we say, corrected by education. So we never stop learning. Oh, we, we saw Casey Stoney criticising some women's Super League
0: squads for not reflecting our multi-ethnic society. Why do you think there are fewer female players of colour than male?
2: It's a really good point. I mean, that's one of the... I mean, at the FA, we've got a, a great lady called Baroness Sue Campbell. And when I uh, I created this coaching programme, which was for... for Which Gareth Southgate we got his full endorsement for, like, from under-15s to the seniors, all the different age groups, the same diversity that you've got on the field... Obviously when Raheem Sterling says, when I look up, I don't see people like you, he also wants to see people like himself. So this was embedded in sort of part of the coaching structure. So if you look when England play, you'll see Chris Powell on the bench. You might see Paul Nevin, you might see Ashley Cole. So I influenced this uh, program, which has been fantastic for members. So to come to your point, the same has to be similar created for women across the game as well, because ultimately, you know, there's a lot of regional centres across the across the country for women's football. They call them RTCs. But my challenge to football, to the to football and stakeholders, is to say, well, where where can little Jane from Tower Hamlets? How can she get entry into exactly. football? Where can little Sally from Lewisham get into football? Where can little Janet from New Cross? get access so where I'm coming from there's a vast talent pool out there in those communities so yes you can have these fantastic you know uh, RTCs they call them in in Surrey in Sussex in in in, in Middlesex that's great that's great but also if we really mean to be inclusive and football is really for all we have to also do the same as well because there's one thing everybody wants when you're a minority it's called equality of opportunity. That's one thing I've always ever wanted. Exactly. That's it. Exactly a level playing field. Parity. You know? And yeah. so, if you do at the moment, and I felt like in my career, <laughs> I feel like there's you have a starting line if you're running the hundred meters, and yeah. I'm starting fifteen meters behind it. You know, when you speak to a lot of people of colour yeah. that's had those challenges, Absolutely. that's what it feels like. And even if you're Usain Bolt, you're not going to make up 15 metres by some, you know, to get to the finishing line and win. So yeah. that's why equality is so important and inclusion is so important. So the good thing is, it is on the FA's radar. It's my job to challenge them. So we've got to get these centres like the equivalent of goals in those other areas of disadvantaged backgrounds, so kids from disadvantaged backgrounds, low socioeconomic uh, backgrounds, they have the opportunity to be inclusive. That's a big bugbear of mine and one that I'm driving with considerable vigour. Fantastic.
1: And I'll just go back to something you mentioned about being a founder of Kick It Out in 92. And another founder, Piara Power, he's obviously a director Yay. of the Chelsea um, yes. FC Foundation, which does great yeah. work to counter discrimination yes. and other good causes. Not many blues fans know Piara, So what would you say his presence at the club brings to Chelsea?
2: I've known Pierre for 30 years. He's a top guy, a good mate of mine. He does some tremendous work, you know, but but he does obviously in the governance side, you know, he's a staunch advocate of equality, diversity and inclusion. He's been now the the executive director of the FAIR Network for a number of years now. So he's got great international profile with UEFA and FIFA and credibility and, and some of the great work that he does, for example... When 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 we have matches in Eastern Europe, he manages the whole independent assessors. So obviously, any sort of adverse behaviour amongst supporters, you know, they create independent reports and they could be used to report and sanction and hold clubs to account. So a lot of his work goes unseen and unrecognized. But I can tell you, he's a, he's an excellent adverse uh, activist of the highest order and very very good for Chelsea. Excellent to hear.
0: Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I'm almost speechless.
1: I thought that was magnificent, absolutely magnificent. <laughs> Paul is such a, a great advocate, isn't he? And he's the—it's like the clarity of purpose, his eloquence, and also his persuasiveness. You know, you—you've—I found him. I always do. I mean, I've known Paul for years. He's a great man, and um, that how compelling he is, how persuasive. Yeah. So it's yeah. wonderful to listen to him. Also, it's glass-half-full manner, you know, positivity, yeah. nuanced approach. It's not just all a kind of, you know, uh, segmented and siloed stuff. It's all really
0: thoughtful. But you can really believe that he's learned so much from all his experiences, and you, then he wants to give back this vast amount of knowledge and understanding to make society better. I mean... You can only have admiration for that. I thought he was absolutely superb, Rick.
1: Yeah, absolutely brilliant guest. Thank you so much, Paul, for coming on the show.
0: Well, Rick, not much else to say. I certainly will say I'll see you in Milan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and thankfully, not the same all star lineup Paul Elliott faced back in the day. <laughs> wow, I think I would have been a little bit nervous about that. Okay, you've been listening to the famous CFC podcast with me, Gary Barone, and him, Rick Lanville. If you liked it, please tell your friends and family, rate us and to subscribe to whichever app you're using and help us promote Chelsea's heritage. In the meantime, play up, pensioners. See ya.
2: Come on.